You may have heard this week, perhaps you watched, but Jay Leno, a, a nighttime host legend of our day, uh, retired. He stepped away for the second time, of course, but everybody thinks this will probably be his last one, and I'm not sure if there's any Leno fans in here. I'm a little bit more partial to Conan myself, but Jay Leno, this whole week, was stepping away, and I think his last show was on Friday night, and this week I was watching about some of this and and watched some clips from his last show, and it was really fit well with what's been going on in my heart this this past week, as I've been thinking about preaching here at Rock Creek uh, as your pastor here uh, for the last time. And what I noticed about Leno as he went through this time, which I think he did it very well, was essentially his message was this, as he stepped away, he said, thank you. Thank you for allowing me to do this thing because through this privilege of getting to do this, I've been able to meet astronauts and presidents and to have all these experiences and I'm filled with gratitude and I want to say thanks to you. That was his parting message. And as I, as I saw that, it just resonated with me as I thought about what I wanted to say to you today. And it's essentially that. I just want to say thank you. Ashley wants to say thank you to you as a church and as a family that welcomed us in five and a half years ago uh, with whom we have grown in some really profound ways, whom we have grown with, whom we have grown to love and walk through life with and walk through hardship and great celebrations with. And our hearts are filled with gratitude for you. You are our family. We love you. And we're so grateful. I can remember my first sermon here at Rock Creek Fellowship. It was a little over five, five and a half years ago. And uh, I can remember that everything was kind of situated the other way. I was down there. The stage was down there. And I was preaching for the first time. And all the doors were wide open. They weren't rolled up at that point. We weren't that fancy yet. They were just wide open, just the big barn doors. And it was pouring down rain. And it was just, it was an amazing experience to be preaching. And here at Rock Creek and having all of creation where it feels like just kind of pours into our building, particularly in the spring and and in the summer and in the fall. So it's pouring down rain outside. So I'm having to talk loudly over the rain. But then also, in Rock Creek fashion, there's kids that are just tearing the whole place up. You know, it's just wall-to-wall chaos, you know, which in a way that only Rock Creek can do it. So I'm having to talk over the kids, and then I notice while I'm preaching there's a dog walking down the aisle. And there's a jukebox in the back that's just going full bore. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm home. This is my kind of place. And so it's been fun to just think back as, as Ashley and I have tried to take this season to just remember and to celebrate and to savor our time here, our relationships with you, and we love you so very deeply. And as I thought about what would I 
preach on this week, it just so happened that this passage, I think, turns out to be the perfect passage to say those things to you. Because this, first and foremost, Paul is thanking God for the Colossians. He is just thanking God for all that that God has done in their lives and all the things that he's seen come out of them, faith and love and hope and all of these things. And so he's, he's giving thanks and he's rejoicing over them. But then secondly, this is a perfect passage because I get to talk about my favorite thing, the gospel. And it's all over this passage. And so it's the perfect passage for me to preach on the last time I get to preach to you as your pastor. So as we come to our passage, I basically want us to ask three questions of this passage. Three simple questions. One, what is the gospel? Second question is, what does it do? What does the gospel do as it's at work? What does it do in a people? How does it transform? Thirdly, how does it work? How does it actually go about changing and transforming and bearing fruit in us? So it's the three questions, then we'll do a little application at the end. That's where we're going. So let's jump into our passage here. And Paul begins this letter the way he does most of the letters. And one of the first things that we see here is as Paul talks about everything that has been happening in them, and here he celebrates their their faith in Christ Jesus that has been growing and multiplying. He, He thanks God for the love that has been abounding among them and their relationships and the hope the deep hope that they've come to embrace of all that that God has for them, Paul locates all of that fruit and everything that is happening in their life as flowing from the word of truth, the gospel. It all, for Paul, flows from the gospel. In fact, all all of his letters essentially give us that flow. They tell you, Paul tells you, what is true? What has God done? What is the reality of the gospel? And then he moves on to saying, now this is how it impacts your life. This is how it flows out of that. But it all begins with God's work on your behalf. It all begins with the truth of the gospel that is entirely a work of God Himself. As we come to this passage and we ask what is the gospel we see in verse 5 that Paul says this gospel this message that has come to you is the word of truth I know the the newer NIV it says I think the the message of truth but literally it says the word of truth in the Greek it is a word of truth so the first thing to understand about the gospel is that it is a word Not just any word, it is God's word. It is not just words, but it is His words that He has spoken that have power. Now, one of the things that becomes blatantly obvious as you look at the Scriptures is that God's word is not simply words. It's not simply advice. It's actually a part of Him. You remember John chapter 1 as he starts it off. He says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. In this mysterious connection that he draws between Jesus, the one that he goes on to say is the Word made flesh, and God's Word. That they're inseparably connected. 
In fact, Jesus is God's Word made flesh that He sent to accomplish all that He would accomplish. God's Word is His power. It's His instrument, His means through which He changes all things. Well, think back for a minute to creation. At the very beginning of everything, as as the earth is formless and empty and darkness covered the surface of the deep, nothing had yet been formed and created. And how does God bring light and life into His world? Let there be light. He speaks it. He speaks it into existence. It is His Word through which He creates. And then He goes about creating the whole world in all of its beauty, in all of its glory, by speaking it into existence. But it's not only through His Word that He creates, it's also through His Word that He recreates, that He redeems, that He brings back to life from death. Paul makes this connection in 2 Corinthians where he describes our conversion as God coming over darkness. Our hearts were darkness. And the the image there is God coming into darkness and speaking and through the gospel saying, let there be light and we come alive. We're born again. The lights go on. We begin to live spiritually. And so the first thing to see about the gospel is that it is a word. It is God's word. And so therefore it has power. And it is His means through which not only He creates, but that He recreates, that He redeems, that He makes new. But it tells us it's a word, but it's a word of truth. The gospel is a truth. It's a reality. It's a truth about what God has done. The gospel is not instructions about what we're to do. The gospel is not our response. It is separate from those things. In fact, it has nothing to do what we do. It is entirely an announcement of what God has done. The gospel itself means good news. And the very essence of news is that it is a report about something that's already happened. Now, if you were to go home and watch the evening news tonight... If you're to watch the news, they're not talking about what you ought to do. They're not talking about what's going to happen coming up. They are reporting what has already taken place. And it's important to see that aspect of the gospel is that it is not what we do. It is not how we are to respond. It is not all of those anything, all of those things that are implications of the gospel. But the gospel itself is a truth. It's an announcement. It's a piece of news about something God has done. And what has He done? What is this truth? God Himself has entered the story He's written. God seeing the brokenness of creation, seeing all of His good world gone south, seeing His very image in open rebellion against Him, sinning against Him, forever separated from Him, God chose to do the unthinkable. God chose to enter the story Himself. In the person of Jesus Christ, God took on flesh. And He lived a perfect life, a perfect human life, always obeying His Father, always following the law, always pleasing God in every respect. Doing this in our place, taking our place, 
obeying where we have disobeyed, and then upon the cross bearing the wrath that we deserve for our sins. And on the basis of His work, His life, His death, and His resurrection, God is turning back the curse on all of creation. And one day on the basis of that work of God in the person of Christ, all things will be made new. That is the gospel. That is the word of truth. And it has power. The word of the gospel itself has power. In fact, as Paul says in Romans, the gospel is the power of God. It is His means of transformation. It is His means of redemption. As we come to this passage, it's important to see Paul's understanding of the gospel in order to understand all that he will say about it. So that is what the gospel is. What does it do? What does the gospel do? What what kind of effects does it bring? What kind of changes and transformation does it bring? Notice what Paul says in verse 6. And there's something about this verse that just captures me. As Paul is almost pulling back the curtain on history, talking to the Colossians, and it's almost as he's inviting them to marvel at something with him, to celebrate something. Now keep in mind in this day, they didn't have Fox News or CNN. They didn't know what was happening all over the world. They only knew what was happening there in their town in Colossae. But Paul invites them to join him in marveling at the power and the work, the global work of the gospel itself. And he says this, all over the world, this gospel is growing and bearing fruit just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all of its truth. Paul's saying, celebrate with me. Marvel with me that this gospel truth is marching forth with great power all over the world. You notice here he kind of, he personifies the gospel here. He doesn't say God's spirit is marching. He doesn't say that God is doing it, although it's implied. But here, the picture he paints is that it is the gospel itself that first has come to you. The picture is God reaching out to us and pursuing us in the message of the gospel. But then he almost switches and makes the gospel into this metaphor of a plant. Did you get that there? All over the world, this gospel, it's growing. It's bearing fruit. It's organic. It's alive. It has power. It's moving. You know, in the southern translation, it would be like kudzu. You ever seen kudzu? I mean, kudzu, you get one little, one little root down, one little spot, and you come back next week, and a whole field's gone, right? Just spreads all over. And that's the picture that Paul is painting here. All over the world, this gospel that's coming to you, it's bearing fruit. It's growing. It's marching. It's transforming places and people and cultures. There's another thing about how the language that Paul uses here. Did that remind you of anything whenever he says the gospel is bearing fruit and growing? You see, Paul is alluding back to something. Back again to creation, back at the very beginning, whenever God creates all things, He creates a a beautiful world and He puts Adam and Eve in it and 
So he's created humanity and he gives them a purpose. He gives them a, a goal, a calling, a vocation. Do you remember what it was? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. That was the calling for Adam and Eve and it's the calling of all of humanity. Is that we are to fill God's good world and bear fruit throughout it to, to serve its and enhance its flourishing and its growth and its order and its beauty to work with Him in that work of turning the earth into the paradise of God. And here, Paul is alluding all the way back to that and saying the gospel itself is accomplishing the work. The gospel itself is bearing fruit and growing as it brings about the new creation. Paul is making that connection there. And there's a third thing to see here, though, is that the gospel itself is a missionary message. As he describes it here, it's the picture of the gospel just spilling over borders, just expanding out all over the world would imply all kinds of people, all kinds of places, all kinds of languages and cultures and skin colors and everything you can imagine. It is God's desire to fill the whole earth with His glory. And the means through which He will do it is this missionary message of the gospel. And it's even at the very core of the message itself. For in the gospel, we see a God who has left comfort, security, the glories of heaven in order to move into the brokenness of our world so that through Him we might know life. The very essence of the message is God being moved out in love and compassion towards us into brokenness so that we might find life. What do you think, therefore, the message should do in us? It ought to move us out. It ought to move us out of comfort, out of security. It ought to move us in compassion towards those who are broken and in need. It is a missionary message. And Paul is saying this gospel, it's doing its natural work. It's organic. As a tree bears fruit, it's just doing what's in its very DNA. Paul is saying this gospel will bear fruit and grow. It's alive. It has power. It is the power of God. But not only does he call them to this global work that's happening, he also brings it right down into their hearts. Colossians, it's the same thing he's been doing in you. Yeah, this gospel's transforming the world, but isn't it also bearing fruit and growing in your heart too? He's reminding them of exactly what has been happening in their hearts, celebrating that reality of how faith has been abounding, of how love has been growing among them, of how hope is welling up, of how it's producing thanksgiving and, and endurance and patience and all of these different things. Paul is saying the work is not just a global thing. It's right there in your hearts. And it was not just on the first day. It's growing more and more and more in your hearts. It's bearing more and more and more fruit. The gospel is not just how you enter and begin the Christian life. But according to Paul, it's also the means through which we change. It is the means through which we bear fruit. That doesn't come from us. It comes from the work of the gospel in our hearts. 
know the remarkable thing to me about Paul's description here of the work of the gospel? Is that we are experiencing this in our day. If you just step back for a moment and begin to reflect about what Paul described was happening in his day, do you realize it's happening today? All over the world today, right now, the gospel is growing and bearing fruit in remarkable ways. Did you know that today there are more Christians in the world than in all of human history previous today? Did you know that? Did you know that in China today, a country that 50 years ago, the grip of atheism on this country was so tight that the church was incredibly small. Did you realize that today there are more Christians in China than there are people in the United States? Larger than our population. Did you know that in Iran today that the church is growing faster than any other place in the whole world? Did you know that it's growing at a rate of 17% a year? you imagine that? In a place where persecution and darkness and the grip of Islam is so strong, but yet the power of the gospel is advancing. Did you know that we're also participating in that work? As we're supporting works in places like Azerbaijan, in India, where churches are being planted, where where church leaders and church planters are being trained for the work of the gospel in their own culture, and in places like Peru and Spain, where the gospel is going forth, we, together as a people, we are participating in exactly what Paul's talking about here. But it's not just globally, is it? It is happening in us. You know the great privilege for me particularly as I've, over the past few months, tried to just step back and celebrate and remember, what's God done here? What's God done in me over the past five and a half years? And what has God done at Rock Creek Fellowship? You know, it, that ought to just be a regular practice for us, of just taking some time and looking back and saying, God, what have you done? What is the What is the work of the gospel done in my life? What kind of fruit do I see growing? And as I've looked back, it's filled me with joy as I've thought about each one of you. And I've thought about how we have grown together. I've grown too. But I've thought about in your lives how I've seen marriages healed and strengthened. I've thought about how I've seen people becoming energized and understanding how to how to give all of themselves to their work and beginning to see their work as kingdom work and as an avenue, in fact, the primary calling through which they participate in God's work in the world. I've seen you grow in that. I've seen you grow in your understanding of the gospel and the joy and the thanksgiving that that brings into your life. I've seen freedom. I've seen growth. I've seen life. And it's been such a joy to experience that with you. And I've also seen, more personally, us as a church being willing to sacrifice and to lose, to send out people from our own family here to go and to plant a church in a different place among people we do not know and perhaps will never know so that the work of the gospel might go forth 
there. Do you see Rock Creek Fellowship? That what Paul was talking about here is happening in our midst. And it's the power of the gospel. It's not in us. It's the gospel itself. So that's what it is and that's what it does. But a bigger question. How does it work? How does the gospel actually do this? Is it just automatic? Is it just that you hear the gospel or you begin to intellectually say, yes, I believe in that? Is that how it changes you? Does it change you by having an experience of it? Does it change you by making a commitment to it? Now, all those things are good in and of themselves, but not, according to Paul, how it actually works in us. Let's look again at the passage here. Paul again says, The gospel has been bearing fruit all over the world and in you ever since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all of its truth. So according to Paul, how the gospel does its work in people and in places is as one, you hear it. That's a prerequisite. But as you understand God's grace in all of its truth, that's what does it. It's as you begin to perceive in the gospel the full magnitude of God's grace for you. It's whenever the the wonders of His grace, the extent of His work on the cross and all of its implications for our life, whenever that reality begins to dawn upon you and your heart, that's when you change. That's what does it. That's what unleashes its power. So how do you do that? How do you come to understand the fullness of God's grace in the gospel? Well, I think in two basic ways. Seeing two essential things. One, the depths and the desperation of our need, of our brokenness. And number two, the full sufficiency and the power of the cross to take all of our sins away, to reconcile us to the Father. It is by seeing those two realities at the same time that we are changed, that we are transformed. Let me try to unpack that a little bit. Whenever you come to Scripture and you see God described and you see His person, and you see His interactions with people, the thing that stands out the most, in fact, the most, by far, the most common description of who God is, is this, holy. He's holy. He's set apart, completely different from us, robed in majesty and surrounded by unapproachable light. The picture we get in Scripture is that God is so holy. And any time any person has an encounter with that holy God, they're always struck with one basic reality. I am ruined in sin. You know, to someone who wasn't fully aware of that, whenever they encounter God, they're immediately struck with the truth of it. Think for a moment about Isaiah in Isaiah 6. Whenever Isaiah is ushered in in a vision into the heavenly throne room, and he comes in and he sees God seated upon his throne. This awesome picture of the Holy One robed in majesty. The train of his robe fills the whole temple, the fullness of his glory. 
He's surrounded by these mighty angelic beings and they're just constantly worshiping him saying, holy, holy, holy. And just at the sound of their mighty voices, the whole place is shaken. And the whole place is filled with the smoke of his presence. What happens to Isaiah whenever he sees that? Face down, immediately. He is struck in an instant with how utterly different he is than the Holy One. He is struck with his own sin. Do you remember what he says? Woe is me. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. My sin knows no end. He didn't know that before. And I live among a people of unclean lips. He even owns the sin of his people. It cuts all the way to the quick, the magnitude of his need and sin. And he is struck. But it's not just seeing the magnitude of your sin. In fact, if you only see that, if God were to open our eyes to the full magnitude of our sin in a moment without seeing the sufficiency of the cross, we'd probably die in a second. Just be vaporized. It's not just seeing our sin that unlocks the power of the gospel. It is at the same time seeing the full, total sufficiency of the cross of Christ to take all of your sin away, to reconcile you to the Father, to make you perfectly righteous in His sight. It is seeing that you are far worse than you even know but more loved and accepted in Christ than you've ever dared to dream at the same time. As you see the fullness of those realities, at the same time, what are you seeing? The fullness of God's grace in all of its truth. See, what's very easy is for us to begin the Christian life and to think, I am broken in sin. I desperately need a Savior. And we're converted at that point that we see the fullness of our sin, deserving of the wrath of God, and at the same time see the full and free offer of the grace of Jesus Christ on the cross. Whenever you see those at the same time and embrace it, you're saved. You're born again. You're changed. Fruit, growth, life happens in that moment. But what so easily happens is that as we go along in the Christian life, we begin to forget those realities. We say, I'm a sinner. I'm just a sinner. But what do we really mean? I used to be a sinner, right? Whenever we confess sins to one another, do we confess present sins or past sins? Past sins, the ones that I've beaten. Because we're not so confident that the ones that are presently in my life and eating my lunch are atoned for by the blood of Christ. You see, what inevitably begins to happen as we move forward in the Christian life is that our perception of our sin weakens. It lessens. Well, I'm not that bad. I used to honky-tonk around a little bit, but now, now, you know, I'm doing all right. Yeah, I got some areas I need to work on, but I'm a pretty good person. And then the What happens inevitably at the same time is the magnitude of the cross, it gets a little smaller too. You know, yes, wonderful, he paid for my past sins. But now I've got to help him out a little bit. I've got to work hard. 
I've got to avoid certain sins. And whenever I'm avoiding those sins, I feel especially close to God. And whenever I'm not, I'm retreating from Him and trying to get my act together. What are we doing? We're minimizing the full realities of God's grace. You know what happens whenever you do that? It zaps the gospel of its power in your life. I know for many of us in here this morning, that's where we are. And I relate. I find myself there all the time. What do you do if you find yourself in a place where His grace is just a little boring? And it doesn't electrify you. What do you do? Well, as Paul says later in Colossians, as he says, just just as you began in Christ, continue in Him in the same way. How did you begin? Through repentance and faith. Now, repentance, repentance has got a bad rap. We hear the word repentance, and what we think is penance. Penance is a word that means satisfaction. Okay? So we think whenever I sin... I need to beat myself up or do some good stuff that will make satisfaction for my sin. But that is penance. That's not repentance. Repentance is not paying for anything. In fact, it is facing the full reality that I can pay for nothing. Repentance is only getting honest. It's just facing the fact of where you are before God. And with it comes faith in God the gospel, embracing the full and radical implications of the blood of Christ for you, that based upon His one act of obedience, I am made forever righteous. That's what Paul says in Romans 5. That is astonishing. And through the daily practice of repentance and faith, that reality comes home. As that reality comes home, what happens? The gospel bears fruit. It grows. It changes you. It it loosens your grip on your stuff. It just happens. That's one of the pictures we see in the book of Acts, is that one of the most dramatic effects of the power of the gospel is upon their economic life. They They stop hoarding things and seeing things as belonging only to them and start saying, you need this? You can have it. Because I... I am so rich in Christ. It changes your relationships. You go from doing relationships of manipulating and, and image management and these things that we all tend to do in relationships to try to justify and to say, I'm okay because people like me. I'm okay and we use people to take from them. But whenever the fullness of the gospel is at work in our hearts, we're free to forget about ourselves, to move towards other people in love. You see, the full reality of God's grace seen in the gospel, it impacts every single facet of our lives. You ever had the opportunity to give like a huge gift to somebody? You know, just to lavish some undeserved love upon somebody? It's really fun if you've ever done it. I feel like in the season we've been in, people have been doing that to us lately. But it's like that, that show, Extreme Home Makeover. You ever seen that show? You know, it's a wildly popular show. And that's essentially what they're doing on this show. They're giving just this 
incredible, enormous gift to these undeserving people. And usually what they do is they try to find somebody who's really broken, who's really found themselves in a hard spot, uh, no way to help themselves. And in fact, the, the more broken their situation, the more awesome the reveal is, right? And so they go to this person, and they whisk them away, and they bring in this whole team of people to come in and to totally transform their house and to like make this house into like a paradise that perfectly fits them. And the whole show is building up to that moment. You know that moment at the very end? Whenever they're, they have the people standing there and they have literally the whole town surrounding them. And everybody is fired up and ready for this moment. And they have them standing there and they pull a huge bus in front of them so they can't see the house. And everything is building towards that moment where they say what? Move that bus. And what happens whenever they move it? Whenever the people see what's been given to them, this tsunami of grace that just hits them straight in the face, they're undone. Their knees buckle. They weep. They laugh. They dance. The whole show is about that moment. It's about seeing that. In fact, that's why all the people are there. They're there celebrating the moment whenever this huge amount of grace just gets poured into this person's life. Why do we love that so much? Because that's what our God is like. That's what He's like. You see, the whole point of everything, of all of creation and all of redemption, is to put us right there in front of that bus and to have the entire chorus of heaven surrounding us. And the only difference is we're standing in front of that bus, not deserving, but His enemies. And our brokenness is far deeper than any of those people that you would see on that show. Our brokenness is compared to God. And what He is after is that moment where He says, move that bus. And the full reality of God's grace hits you and you're undone with joy, with celebration, with worship, with enjoyment. Here's the difference. It's not His blessings He wants to reveal to us. It's not just stuff that He wants to lavish upon us. He wants to give us Himself. See, He is the reveal. He wants to move the bus and we see Him in the fullness of who He is, who belongs to us. And us to Him. He is the treasure. He is the prize. He is the lottery. He would make the the Powerball look like a tip. He is the treasure. You see what Paul's telling us here? It's already all yours. The reveal's already happened. Now we're going to get some help at the consummation. We're going to be able to see it in its fullness with no more darkly dimmed glasses. We'll see it in all its fullness at the, at the consummation. But now, as we see it more and more and more, it transforms us. Paul says the reveal has happened. It's already happened, and it's all yours. And as Martin Luther said, the only thing that we lack is the faith to believe it. You 
are a child of the king. Sons and daughters, you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And when God looks on you, He sees the perfect righteousness of His Son, and so therefore you are forever accepted in Him. Do you believe that? Can that get deeper than your head? Because if it will, it will change you. Rock Creek Fellowship. My friends, my family, my brothers and sisters, I love you so much. And this is my charge to you. To every single day, battle and fight to marvel, to marvel at the wonders of God's grace in all of its truth for you. Marvel at it. Cling to it. Work out its implications upon your life. Savor it. Study it. Let it change you so that God would be glorified on this earth through us. Let's pray.